Welcome to the Sus Talk Podcast. I'm Sumo Rocky, and we are continuing our NFL divisional previews by wrapping up the AFC with the South. And joining me the joining me this week is the host of the For the Culture podcast. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And my fellow co-worker over at CBS Sports Radio, I am joined by diehard Indianapolis Colts fan, Luke Diamond. Luke, thank you so much for taking the time to join the show. Well, I appreciate you having me, Sus. Glad to hop on and talk some Colts football and AFC South. Of course. Let's go right to it because I this division is very... It's very competitive, although it kind of suffers sometimes because of the lack of talent. That's been kind of the complaint with this division over the years. Although, so let's start with from the bottom to the top. Let's go with the Jacksonville Jaguars. And this team soared high up in 2017 and then came crashing down. And I think the main storyline here is how hard do you think they're going to tank for Trevor? Well, I'm pretty sure they're in the tank for Trevor. We saw them trade away all their cornerbacks. We saw them trade away Jalen Ramsey, and then they trade Campbell to Baltimore. So they pretty much have gone into the tank in terms of not like a tank where you're going out telling your players to lose, which I'm a thousand percent against, but a tank where, okay, we're going to set the team up where the players could go out and play to win. The coaches could go out and coach to win, but the team just does not have enough talent on a week in, week out basis to win enough games to do anything. And they will end up ultimately in the, I would say, top five of the draft this year. And I would assume that the Jacksonville Jaguars would be in the running for Trevor Lawrence or Justin Fields. That's pretty much where I would put them right now. I think it's a competitive division. I think it's a talented division. You said that the AFC South is knocked for the lack of talent. Over the last couple of years, I don't think it was the lack of talent as much as it is the lack of history. Three out of the four teams in the division haven't been to a Super Bowl, haven't won a Super Bowl. So when you look at the AFC South haven't won a Super Bowl. So you look at the AFC South, the Jaguars don't have a Super Bowl, the Titans don't have a Super Bowl, the Texans don't have a Super Bowl. So it's just not a great historic division. And then the Colts' history is split between two cities. Half their history, you know, right now, because we finally passed that 35-year mark, half their history is in Baltimore with Johnny Unitas and all those guys. So when you look at the AFC South, established in 2002, not a lot of history. So even when you have talented teams, it just doesn't carry the same amount of weight as when a, a division like the NFC East is up and running. Because even when the Giants are bad, the Redskins are bad, that division has so much history between the Eagles, the Cowboys, the Giants, and the Redskins, even though in these recent years they haven't been too good. Because when you look at the AFC South the last couple of years, three consecutive years, they've had at least two teams in the playoffs representing the division. And then this year, with the seventh playoff spot, I would expect at least two teams to make it again. I just go by just kind of the perception that I've always heard was that it's usually a scrum. A lot of the AFC, like the AFC South is either the, the one team is completely dominating the division or it's a scrum where the winner, the top division winner is, has at least 10 to 11 wins. And that's kind of the perception that they have. But although I do want to kind of reel back into the Jaguars. So what exactly do you think went completely wrong for them? Cause they were, all their peak was going to the AFC Championship with Blake Bortles and this monstrous defense, and everything just kind of crashed and burned. What exactly happened that caused them to go on a complete downturn? Well, I never thought the continuity was good. I never thought the team was as good as that peak they hit when they got to that AFC Championship. When you have Blake Bortles as your quarterback, like a lot of the long-lasting teams you see that are 
perennial playoff teams getting to constant AFC, NFC championships or Super Bowls are teams like the Colts in the 2000s with Peyton Manning or the Patriots for the last two decades with Tom Brady. Usually you have that rock at the quarterback position. Tom Brady has won six Super Bowls, but when you look at his third Super Bowl to his fourth Super Bowl, out of that 53-man roster, the, there was only one player remaining from number four to number – actually, I think it was from number four – no, number three to number five. When you went – no, when you went from three – because there was a 10-year gap from three to four. From Super Bowl three to Super Bowl four for Tom Brady, he saw 51 teammates be replaced. So the rock of the team, the quarterback position is just so important. When you have a situation – like the Jacksonville Jaguars, when you overachieve and your quarterback is a backup caliber quarterback in this league, and then you don't have a great locker room culture, and they brought Tom Coughlin in, they had all those problems, and then the defense piece by piece was getting traded away. I did think they went into the tank a little bit too early with the defense. I would have tried to have kept that unit together a little bit longer, but I think that they just kind of, uh, I thought they gave up probably a little bit too early, but when you don't have the quarterback, it just masks so many inefficiencies and those inefficiencies were obviously glaring without that position you know locked down i think one of the subplots and we're going to get into the subplots of each each team in this division as well i think the one main glaring uh story has to be leonard Fournette, and he's been in trade rumors for ever since last year do you think that he'll get traded and what kind of team would want somebody like leonard Fournette? Uh, I don't know. It's tough because teams don't build around running backs anymore. I thought it was a mistake when the Jaguars drafted him. I don't value running backs that high unless you're ready to win a Super Bowl. And that's like the final piece missing and you're drafting in the mid to late 30s. Like I thought the Chiefs last year, it was fine with, with Edwards Hilaire because they're a team competing for a Super Bowl. So you plug and play the running back right away and you go out and you compete to win a Super Bowl. The problem with the running back position is when you're rebuilding, like the Giants, for instance, when you take a running back second overall and you are four-plus years away from getting to the playoffs and competing, you're wasting the prime years of that running back. So I thought the Jaguars made that mistake with Leonard Fournette, and they were not ready to win, although they did get to that AFC Championship game. Nobody saw them getting to that game. They overachieved. They peaked that one year. And I don't know. I would have a very difficult time seeing them getting what they would value Leonard Fournette at. Because he has not lived up to the billing. I thought he'd be much better coming out of LSU. He really hasn't lived up to that billing. So, will they put him on the trade block and try to trade him? Yes, I would assume that those rumors are true. Why not? You're nowhere close to winning right now. You don't need that running back on your roster. But at the same time, you want to get that value back, or at least close to that value back after using a first-round pick to get him. So, no, I don't think that they're going to get anything close to where they would value him at because of the position. It's a, it's a dying position in terms of individual bell cow backs, and it's a league now that is more running back by committee, so I thought the Jaguars made a mistake with the pick, and I think now you're seeing them kind of suffer those repercussions. It feels like the right team that could really use him is just kind of a power run team, Some a team that will basically use, a run, use his abilities to kind of just like go burst through a hole that's being created by the offensive line, and I just think for what the team is right now and given how much they dismantled their defense, it just feels like they're not going to use them like correctly and they're going to, or there won't be situations where they'll be able to utilize them effectively because they're going to be constantly behind. And like Fournette's one of his um, drawbacks has been his inability in the, as a passing down back at the very least. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, the real thing is just, I mean, running backs are such a dime a dozen. The Colts last year had Jonathan Williams run for over 200 yards and a touchdown in a five-day span from Sunday when Marlon Mack got hurt to the following Thursday night football. He ran for 100-plus in both games. He went over 200 yards in the two games combined in a five-day span, just pulling him up off the street. And, of course, the Colts do have that power run game. They have that great offensive line, so they have the ability to do that. But that just goes to show that it doesn't really matter how talented the running back is. Saquon Barkley is arguably pound for pound the most talented running back in the league. The Giants last year played the Jets, and on 13 carries, he had one yard. So it just goes to show it doesn't really matter how perfectly prototypically built the running back is. It doesn't really matter, you know, how many times you give him the ball. If the O-line's not there, the O-line is not there. And you could really pick up any running back off the street like Jonathan Williams. And last year, he plugs and plays for Marlon Mack, and the Colts don't even miss anything. So it just shows where we are today in the NFL. This is not the 1980s where you have that bell cow back where you're going to pound every single week like Walter Payton. It's a different era of football, and he just doesn't have enough value on the trade block. Would he be better in a situation like Dallas or Pittsburgh or Indianapolis? Of course. But what would any of those teams, the Colts wouldn't do it. Their running back room is loaded and it's a division trade, which you very rarely see. But could he, you know, and then you know, you talk about Connor with the Steelers and Elliott with the, with the Cowboys. So I don't see any of those. But just for argument's sake, would he be better in those situations? Of course. I just don't see, I don't see, like the running back position just doesn't have enough value. We saw what happened with Todd Gurley and they fall off so insanely quick. Fournette's already had injury concerns and injury problems in the past. I don't see it happening. Let's go quickly to the fantasy spotlight that I will. I think that the sole guy, the sole bright spot on this team has to be DJ Shark. I think he's going to get plenty of opportunities given that his team's probably going to be playing from behind. Where do you see DJ Shark and how, and how does he match up against not only the rest of the league, but especially the corners in the division as well? Because this the defenses in this division could really make other teams work. Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely a good point. And I'm not a fantasy guy. I've never been a huge fan of fantasy football. If I had to guess off the top of my head without like looking through the numbers where he would rank among AFC South wide receivers, somewhere probably from third to sixth on any given day, a healthy TY, a healthy AJ Brown would definitely be ahead of him. But yeah, he would be in that, you know, in that mix for sure. And uh, another bright spot. I know it has nothing to do with fantasy, and I don't want to get too off topic. But Josh Allen defensively, who they drafted last year in the first round, is definitely a bright spot as well on this Jaguar team. But, yeah, I would put Shark in that, like, three to six range for AFC South wide receivers. Losing DeAndre Hopkins is huge for the division in terms of a superstar go-to wide receiver who's, like, automatic fantasy points every week. But, yeah, he'd probably be in that, like, three to six range on any given week. I I know that you just said you're not into fantasy, but I found the story very interesting. So they did – I, I think Bud Light, they announced this, uh, that if anybody drafts Gardner Minshew number one overall and they win their season, they get at, and they win their league, they get a season's worth of free beer. Hypothetically, would anyone even try to do this? Because that means that not only you're sacrificing a running back and wide receiver spot, but you're getting, drafting a quarterback that's not even a top 20 quarterback. The, I actually didn't hear that. It's pretty funny. Sus, but... Well, what are, what are the rules? Like, is it a special league? Like, do you have to enter, like, a special league? Or could it be any, like, just BS league with your I, I Honestly, I have no idea because, like, I just read the headline and I just started laughing. But I think it kind of just – that's kind of, like, it opens to my point that Minshew, like, last year was 
pretty exciting. Like he had he had like a good like two to three week run where the league was kind of just really into him. They were into all the funny things that he was doing. Like I know that he's pretty much a transition quarterback this year, but what when you watched Gardner Minshew, were you impressed at all by or anything that surprised you about him that made you think like changed your perception of who he was before he took the field? Well, for sure. I mean, it's a good question. It's a good point you brought up because he is more of a quirky guy. So I think he is more of a transition quarterback, more of a flash in the pan guy. We'll remember him and Jaguar fans will look back in 10 years and say, hey, remember that year Gardner Minshew? You remember the end of his rookie year after drafting him in the sixth round? Remember that second year? We only won three games, but he said, you know, this, this and this in postgame press conferences. He made this one incredible throw. That was great. I think he's going to be one of those type of players when we look back in the history books because he is one of those kind of quirky guys he had his mustache in a ziploc bag i think he sold it the week of the super bowl so that's just the kind of personality he is and he did impress me last year because you're talking about a sixth round pick at the quarterback position most important position on the field coming into a season where everybody thought after the money they gave nick Foles and nick Foles coming off a couple of years ago removed from a super bowl and a super bowl mvp so everybody thought that nick Foles if he were to stay healthy, would have been the 16-game starter, breaks his collarbone week one, comes back, I think, around week nine, then pretty much gets outplayed by Gardner Minshew. The game he came back was against the Colts. The Colts blew him out, and then Gardner Minshew and the Jaguars blew the Colts out in week 17. And then, of course, he gets traded off to Chicago, where he'll compete with Mitch Trubisky. So I definitely think he's more of a flash in the pan in Jaguar in Jacksonville. I think he's a placeholder, and I think they're going to get up into the top five this year for Lawrence or Fields. So I think that's the future for the Jaguars. But, yeah, in the present, I mean, he's definitely a fun quarterback to watch in the now. And a sixth-round pick coming in, playing the way he played last year, I was definitely impressed. You know, everybody could make the comparison, oh, Tom Brady in the sixth round. Yeah, but that's so rare. To be able to come in in the sixth round and be able to play right out the gates. And he also went to, like, four different colleges. He floated around. So, yeah, I was, I was definitely impressed. You know, not really knowing too much about him going into last year and then the season he had and then kicking the Colts' ass in Week 17. I think you know what I see in Gardner that that I'm thinking of immediately. This guy's the next generation Ryan Fitzpatrick. He's just gonna keep going all <laughs> across the league as a backup quarterback, as a journeyman. He's going to be the ideal backup guy that you want, and he's gonna be just interesting and an interesting person. Like you notice that like the the older Fitzpatrick got, the more quirky and weird that he got. And I think with Mitch yep. is kind of like a reverse Fitzpatrick where he's weird now, but I think he's going to become more normal as, as he ages. <laughs> I don't know if it'll become more normal, but he's definitely weird now. So it'll be interesting to see if he does take the career trajectory of Ryan Fitzpatrick, how weird he could get because he's off to a wonderful start. All right. So are we both in agreement that their win total is set at five and we're both in agreement that th- that's a definite lock under. I would say it's a definite lock under, but I think it's a good line because it'd be a line I'd be afraid to touch. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'd be, I'd be, I mean, I don't think they'll win more than five. I think five, you know, you're pushing at five. I think I would, if I had to bet, I would take the under probably not one I'm going to touch, but if I had the, you know, gun to my head over under, I would probably go under five, but I think it's a good line. Mm. Let's go right to the Texans who, God, their win total is eight, but I think the definite main story here is how is Bill Bill O'Brien still here after just blowing that Chiefs game in the divisional round 
And then all the moves just continue to confuse me over and over. You saw last year, they traded away Jadavian Clown. He's at the Seahawks, which, you know, as a Seahawks fan, I'm still very much happy about that all happened. It's nope. a fantastic trade. They, he trades for Laramie Tunsil and Kenny Stills and also packages a bombshell amount of, of uh, a bombshell of a return. And like, my goodness. So it's, He's baffling, but also at the same time, he just somehow keeps his team afloat. So, to me, like, what are you? What are your thoughts on Bill O'Brien? And seriously, how is he still on this team? <laughs> I think he's an awful, awful head coach. And then on top of it, if this is even possible, he might be a worse general manager. He's made a flurry of moves over the last few years that did not make any sense. The worst one being this most recent trade in March, trading DeAndre Hopkins to the Cardinals for the corpse of David Johnson and what a second round pick, but then he also had to give up, I think a fourth round pick. You might have to check the details there. I'm fact checked me on the trade, but it was an awful trade. It made absolutely no sense. You look at some of these other premier talents around the league that have been traded, including a trade that the Texans made for Laramie Tunzel and Laramie Tunzel. Yes. He's a former first round pick in Miami, but he had no pro bowl appearances until last year with the Texans. He had no all pro and still has no all pro appearances on the AP all pro teams over the first couple of years in the league. So the fact that he gave up that much for Tunsil, and then you look at Khalil Mack and all the other premier blue chip guys around the league that have been traded before the age of, let's say, 28, they all yielded multiple first-round picks, including the most re recent one to your Seattle Seahawks with Jamal Adams for multiple first-round picks. So that trade made absolutely no sense. The Tunsil trade made sense in the you know in regard to protecting your franchise quarterback which they really put no resources into before that to protect Deshaun Watson but yeah awful head coach did a horrible job in the playoffs and then made that horrible trade in March with DeAndre Hopkins so yeah just head scratching move after head scratching move including the clowny move to your Seattle Seahawks I was I think I was I was shocked because Hopkins getting traded was like you, it's, you never saw it coming. It was one of those um, football stories that just you nobody could even predict at all. And then the fact that he only got a second round pick and David Johnson out of it, it, it's like I don't know what he's doing. It's like pretty much all the general managers in the league just now know. Rule of thumb: trade, trade, and work with Bill O'Brien. He'll just basically give you anything. Hell, he'll give you Deshaun Watson if you give him something. If you entice them, exactly. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. If I was, if I wasn't in his division, because I'm as bad as he is, I don't think he would pick up the phone and trade the quarterback within the division. But if I was a team around the league, I would definitely. Do it. You can't. It can't hurt to get hung up on. You call, you get hung up on. So be it. You move on. You have nothing to lose in a phone call. So yeah, I would definitely call up. Hey, what do you want for Deshaun Watson? Because at this point, nothing would surprise me with Bill O'Brien. Awful game manager, awful with locker room culture, awful with making trades, roster construction. Just honestly, he's like Pagano and Grigson melded into one awful football mind. I really don't know. Well, I mean, I guess I do know. You talked about before, why do they keep him around? I think he's just a safety net, to be honest. After the owner passed away, I think his wife or his daughter took over the franchise. I don't think she knows what she's doing. I think she's well in over her head, and I think – he was just a guy that maybe had a good relationship with her. She trusted him with the franchise, and she kind of just gave him the keys, made him the general manager slash head coach as if he was 
Bill Belichick, but you know, he's not, he's a, you know, he has the same first name, but literally nothing else in common with Belichick, even though he came off his tree. So I think that's the reason if I actually had to pick a reason why he has the keys to the franchise, why he has all this control as bad as he is at both jobs, I would think it's because the owner passed away. And then when his wife or whoever took over, I think she was just in over her head and then went to him as some type of safety net. I'm just confounded. And you know, I never actually thought about it. It's like, it says a lot about you, your work as not only a head coach, but also a general manager. When someone who's experienced the horrors of the Grigson era is basically saying that you're just as bad as that, as that he was. <laughs> and keep in mind, I, I, Ryan Grigson somehow managed to find find another job. And I'm pretty sure he's last I saw, he was working with the Seahawks. So when I found out about yeah. that, I got really, really scared, and I was just incredibly worried. It's like, oh, God, he's going to kill Russell Wilson now, isn't he? He's going to <laughs> – Well, bringing, bringing Ryan Grigson in, I always thought about this. Bringing Ryan Grigson into your front office and just having him sit in the corner playing with, like, like Legos or something and just asking him questions every now and then and then doing the opposite of what he says is not a bad strategy for a war room. Hey, Ryan, do you like this guy? Yes. Okay, we could cross him off the list. Hey, Ryan, do you like this guy? No. Okay, let's draft him in the second round. I mean, it's really not a bad strategy since the guy was wrong about pretty much everything he did. The only reason I make the analogy is because he is a horrible head coach and a horrible general manager. So I just threw in a little Colt comparison and combined the worst head coach and the worst general manager of my lifetime as a Colt fan. But individually, the worst GM I've ever seen is Ryan Grigson. So I'm sorry he's with you, but if you go with the reverse psychology, it could definitely work out. I'm glad to hear that. And I hope that uh, John Schneider is employing your strategy of just basically doing the exact opposite of whatever Grigson tells you. Because I'm pretty sure his role is that he's like an advisor to the front office or some sort. So he's like loosely connected. So let's go into an, a looming decision that's coming onto this team, which is the contract extension of Deshaun Watson. He has been their star quarterback from day one. And he has really just blossomed into one of the premier quarterbacks in the league. But they haven't really done much of a good job of helping him at all. Like the Hopkins trade didn't help. And you also mentioned their lack of investment in an off- in the offensive line until the, the Tunsil trade. At some point, do you think that Deshaun Watson's days as a Texans quarterback are numbered? Or are they going to work something out? Uh... I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, I, I would assume they would eventually figure something out because you look around the league, it is so rare, so rare to see an elite quarterback, which I believe Deshaun Watson is as far as talent. I believe he is an elite quarterback in that five or that three to seven range in that, in that general area. So it's very rare to see guys like that hit the market before the age of 34, 35. You look at Peyton Manning when he hit the market, you look at Brett Favre, when he hit the market, Tom Brady just hit the market for the first time at 43. So Philip Rivers, same thing, just now at 38. So it's very rare for those guys, those all-pro caliber, MVP caliber quarterbacks to hit the market in their 20s, like Deshaun Watson is, extremely rare, or early 30s. Usually you don't see that until 35, and usually there's a reason. With Peyton Manning, it was the next surgery, and Andrew Luck. With Brett Favre, it was... You have Aaron Rodgers sitting on the bench for three years, and you just have to eventually play him. So usually there's a reason. With Tom Brady, 
the reason might not be as clear cut to us right now, but you're talking about a 43 year old man. So after playing for 20 plus years in new England, it can't be a surprise at this point when you talk about a guy like Sean Watson, who's still in his 20s. So it's a totally different situation. It's just so rare to see young elite quarterbacks hit the market. So I think they will get something done, but on the flip side, this is obviously not just the team's decision. It's also Deshaun's decision. And if I'm Deshaun Watson, I'm going up to whoever, you know, whoever the wife of, um, what's the owner's name? Cause I it keep was, blinking on Bob the name. McNair, I believe. McNair. Yeah. 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 He had the, he had the, the, um, the bad comments right before he died about the inmates. But yeah, whatever his wife's name was, I, I don't know why Nancy's popping in my I, mind. I, I think we but... can, we don't have to fixate on his name. Let's go. I think the one thing that I want to do, I do want to say is that if I'm just Sean Watson, like, here's what I remember. I remember that at some point there was like a little bit of rumblings that maybe Deshaun Watson could be going elsewhere, whether he's traded or somewhere. It's like, I remember it could have sworn like, there was like odds saying that he might be the next Patriots quarterback or something. Yeah, I never really bought into that. Could was it a possibility? I'm sure it was. Everything I guess is on the table, but I never really bought into that. I was just thinking in terms of whoever the owner is now, his wife McNair's wife. If I were to show Watson, I would go to her office and be like, "Look, my value to this franchise is undeniable. My sorry, my um." My value to this organization is undeniable. I need the security. I need the you know the long-term extension. You got to do this, this, and this for me. This, this, and this would be firing Bill O'Brien, bringing in a new coach, bringing in a new general manager. Because you look at what happened with Andrew Luck in Indianapolis. He never put his foot down. He never you know demanded that trade for protection for a defense, for a competent head coach, for a competent general manager. If you went to Ursay's office in let's say 2014, 2015, he'd probably still be playing right now and things would be a hell of a lot different. It's interesting to see, but, and I do want to wrap up the Texans with uh, asking not only whether they'll hit their win total, but this reworked offense is just very interesting to me because you bring in David Johnson, who I still think they might be able to get something out of, but what concerns me is just who they replaced DeAndre Hopkins with. You have Will Fuller, who is basically the definition of what an injury-prone player is. It is what yep. it is with him. You have Kenny Stills, who's that you know he is what he is, and then Brandon Cooks, who has a history of concussions. And I'm just thinking to myself, yep. what are you doing? Like, what is there no plan for the wide receiver position? Your only slot receiver, at least natural slot receiver, is Kiki Kuti. And I'm just thinking yeah. to myself. This guy, I thought this guy was supposed to be this offensive genius, and I have no idea what he's been doing with that, with his offensive weapons. Yeah, also, Stills and Cooks are very, very similar wide receivers in terms of what they give you on Sunday, in terms of how they line up, their route running ability, their hand. Like, when you go down the line, they're very, very similar, comparable wide receivers. You didn't really fill that DeAndre Hopkins jump ball, high point the ball type of wide receiver you didn't get that guy back now there's only a handful of deandre hopkinses on the planet you talk about deandre hopkins you talk about you know michael tom you talk about three or four you talk about three or four guys so it's you know it's you're talking about all pro caliber wide receivers so 
were you going to be able to go out and replace him? No, was that trade a good idea? No, they never should have made it in the first place. But they made that trade, and then when they went out and tried to replace him, they did an absolutely awful job with it. You have a wide receiver room that is injury-prone, concussion-prone, and just does never replace the talent or even came close, in my opinion, to replacing the talent of DeAndre Hopkins. I think we haven't really touched on their defense because they also did lose a few key pieces there as well. But let's wrap it up with simply, are we assuming under for this team, the win total is at eight. So a push is very much possible and, and very much in play. Yeah, I mean, Vegas is so good at what they do. I thought five was very well set for the Jaguars. Four and a half probably would have been perfect. I would have been, I would have definitely shied away from it at four and a half. At five for the Jaguars, I could have seen taking, you know, taking it because because the push is very much in play. And then same thing here. I think the push is very much in play again. If I had to pick gun to my head, although I love the line at eight, and that's probably where I would have set it. I would take the over just because you're talking about an elite quarterback. So could he pull three, four wins? out of his hat yes and then you know then you're looking at four four team wins so that's that's probably how i would get to around that eight number i think it's a good number i wouldn't bet against deshaun watson winning eight eight or nine games so i would probably lean towards the over let's go to the tennessee titans this team shocked the world and i'm serious when i say this they shocked the world when they beat the patriots in the wild card beat the ravens in the divisional round and then Face nearly took a fight to the Chiefs, who are almost this dynasty-built franchise right now. So you're talking about this battle-tested and tough Titans team, and they did it behind Ryan Tannehill and Derrick Henry. They signed both of those guys to good extensions. And main storyline for them, I believe, is can they climb back up that mountain again? No, I do not think their fall will be as quick and as severe or whatever you want to call it as the Jaguars when they also shocked the world getting to an AFC championship. I also didn't think the Jaguars' run to the AFC championship was as impressive. Going on the road and beating the Patriots and ending the Tom Brady era in New England, if you will, and then playing the Baltimore Ravens, who look at times unbeatable this season— Two really good defenses, two really good teams, two Hall of Fame coaches, MVP and Lamar Jackson, who that defense essentially shut down for a good majority of that game. Ryan Tannehill made plays when he needed to. He didn't show up, in my opinion, against the Chiefs, and they played pretty well against the Chiefs in the first half of that game. Derrick Henry had the playoff run of his lifetime. Both guys got big contract extensions. I think Tannehill was four years, 118 mil. And I think Henry was four years as well for about 50 mil. Both guys got big chunks of guaranteed money. Tannehill was around 60, 62. And then Henry was around half. I think it was around 50. I mean, uh, the 50 million overall, I think it was around 25 million guaranteed. So they both had really nice paydays. I thought those paydays were probably premature, especially the quarterback with Tannehill because he did not have that success or anywhere close to that success in Miami. Then you're paying him based off seven games, two playoff games as a game manager, even though he did make some nice plays and then not showing up in the AFC championship game when they needed him most. And then the running back, we talked about it with Leonard Fournette and I gave my opinions on drafting running backs high. 
I feel the exact same way about paying running backs big money. Now, I like Derrick Henry. I love the fact that he did not complain. He didn't threaten to hold out for a big contract. They pounded him into submission last year. He ran the ball. I would assume he ran the ball as much or more than any running back around the league. He probably had around 300 carries last year going into the playoffs, maybe 300, 350. He touched the ball a lot last season on the ground, so they pounded him. And I don't care how big he is, that will wear down on you. So I was glad he got his money. I always want to see players get their money, especially when I believe they earned it, which they did. It's just you're paying the quarterback on such a small sample size, and then you're paying the running back top money, which I'm always hesitant to do because running backs are such a dime a dozen. Although, granted, their offense is probably 80% Derrick Henry. And at least for the short term, if you do want to get back to an AFC championship or you want to get to a Super Bowl this year, you're going to need him and you're going to need him to play at the level he did last year. So they definitely overachieved last year. They had a great playoff run. It was fun to watch, even though I hate the Titans and I hate Titan fans. They're some of the worst fans out there, I swear to God. And I was actually in Nashville for that AFC championship game, believe it or not. But, yeah, you look at that team. They overachieved last year. Good for them. Beat the Patriots on the road. Very impressive. Beat the Baltimore Ravens on the road. Also very impressive. Maybe a little bit more impressive because the Ravens were more balanced last year. And I thought they were a better team. And they were coming off the week of rest. But, yeah, I don't think we're going to see that Titan team hit those same expectations as they are now setting for themselves after last year. Plus, also, they lost Jarrell Casey, who was a big part of that defense in the interior. It's a lot to take in, but like, I, what to me when when we both watch, which by the way, I, I'm saving that your hatred for the Titans and their fans for much later on. But I I, I do want it, this recap that playoff run because it's so impressive. Especially look, I remember more the Patriots run, like the Ravens run. Well, the Ravens win was memorable just because Henry was just running all over them. And you saw that he basically just humiliated Earl Thomas in that game. And then oh, yeah, it, was it, was, uh, it was fantastic to watch, but the Patriots game was just more, that was not, not just them beating the Patriots. That was Mike Vrabel beating Bill Belichick in his mm-hmm. own game. He beat him the way that Bill beats other, other coaches in any NFL any circumstance. And is it time to consider Mike Vrabel? Is he a top echelon head coach? Does he Has he earned that mark, or do you want to see him continue this? No, I thought he got hot at the end of last year. I thought he did a great job at the end of last year, but I would not put him in the top echelon of coaches yet. I actually wasn't a huge fan of April going into the playoffs last year, and he definitely got hot. I got to give credit where credit's due, but I think it would be a little bit early to throw him into that mix just yet. I, it's just... To me, and I do want to like with you mentioned with Tannehill, you you mentioned the small sample size, and what my thinking was getting into the draft was the Titans could be in play for drafting a quarterback. They could have been one of the teams that drafted Jacob Eason or Jacob Fromm, Jake Fromm or Jalen Hurts somewhere around that range, just because like you see like I feel like they're in that similar situation with the Chiefs where. They had a reliable quarterback in Alex Smith, but they knew they needed somebody better to take him to that next level. And I figured that either let's see them play it out, but which is why them extending Tannehill really shocked me because I would assume they looked at what happened in Kansas City and thought, you know what? We need to wait for this next superstar to come in soon or at least wait for his next class. 
I, I that's why to me like that extension shocked me. Yeah, it surprised me. The number surprised me. I expected him to be back next year. I expected a small extension. I did not see four years coming with more than half or about half of that guaranteed. I think it was around $62 million guaranteed. I was surprised by that. You got to figure they're going to bring him back while also looking for a quarterback in the upcoming draft, the draft that has now passed. But I do agree with you. I thought they were going to be looking to kind of follow suit with that Kansas City model. But that Kansas City model also did wait around a little bit until Patrick Mahomes fell into their lap or fell into a range where they can move up and go get him. So it's not something that happens all the time. Patrick Mahomes level talent. We're talking once a decade, once a century level talent. I mean, he's just off the charts. So that's not going to be there at 10 every year the way it was when Mahomes was drafted. And what was that, 2017? But, yeah, no, I definitely think if they saw a guy they loved that even with the four-year extension for Tannehill, I would assume it was on the table and they just never saw that guy. But the Chiefs went multiple years with Alex Smith competing and kind of getting the same results, 11-12 wins, 10-11-12 wins, getting into the playoffs, maybe winning a playoff game, maybe winning a couple playoff games, never got to a Super Bowl. At that time, it's ironic, but they were a little bit more defensive-minded. And now, obviously, they're pr- primarily entirely offensive-minded. But, yeah, no, I definitely I definitely agree with you there. It's just you don't have to do it right away. You could go into next year. You could still compete with Ryan Tannehill, and you could find that quarterback maybe in next year's draft. So it, I like the patience that they're going with in terms of drafting the future quarterback to develop for a year under if they were to go with the complete Kansas City mo- you know, um, model and develop under Ryan Tannehill. So I could definitely see that happening in the next year or so, like you said, but it's not something you got to rush, especially because even though I don't love the four year deal for Tannehill, he did just, you know, he did just game manage your team to an AFC championship. So as long as you keep enough pieces in place, could you get back there for sure? I want to spotlight one of their main wide receiver, one of their main weapons on offense, AJ Brown, I think he really bursted onto the scene and really the talk of the draft amongst the receiving class, which by the way, an astounding receiving class last year alongside his team is Ole Miss teammate DK Metcalf, who I consider to be is going to be the best wide receiver in that particular class. But his teammate AJ Brown really just came out of nowhere. Well, didn't, Really, I would say nowhere, but he really just bursted onto the scene and became such a dis- difference maker for the Titans right in the second half of the year. When you watched him, what impresses you most about him? Yeah, well, definitely the size, the, that size-speed-physicality combo. Like Metcalf, probably a little bit more well-rounded as a wide receiver in terms of route-running ability. Definitely route-running ability because as great as Metcalf was last year, the one major knock on him still is the route running ability, even though it was better than I think most people maybe anticipated. And that's why he fell to the Seahawks as late as he did. But I would say AJ Brown, just that size speed combination and that old miss wide receiver class was insane last year. I actually thought AJ Brown going into the draft was the best old miss receiver to come out. I had him ahead of Metcalf. I was hesitant with Metcalf because of the route running ability but obviously he had a great playoff run he had a great end of the season definitely proved a lot of people wrong and a lot of scouts were probably shaking their heads gm shaking their heads that they could have got him 
before he fell to the Seahawks. Where'd you guys take him in the third round? He fell pretty Late far. second round, and I believe the Seahawks yeah. traded up to get him too. Yeah, so you're talking you're talking about every team passing on him at least once, some teams twice, maybe even some teams three times if you had multiple picks. Like I think that year the Raiders had a couple picks in the first round. They probably passed on him maybe three times. So yeah, a lot of teams definitely kicking themselves for that. But I was very impressed with AJ Brown and Metcalf last year. I thought both old miss receivers had really solid rookie seasons. And I would say right now, AJ Brown is probably the best wide receiver in the AFC South. TY battling injuries the last couple of years, and of course DeAndre Hopkins depart you know making the departure in the trade to Arizona so yeah right now on paper I would say I would say like the key guy to like circle as the top receiver in the AFC South would probably be AJ Brown so let's wrap the wrap things up with the Titans quickly with their win total set at 8.5 and I think that it's very complicated because on the one hand I want to say you could easily go, they're going to be mediocre, 8-8, eight and eight, go under. Or you could say, I'm, I think they're going to make another run again and make the playoffs, so over. So what, do you, what would you believe is the right course of action here? I think it's a very interesting line. So far, every line's been pretty good. Again, I could see it going over. I could see it going under. The only one I guess I can't see going over would be the Jags. I think it could push or go under. And then both these I could probably see going either way because you look at that Titans team and you say, okay, I'm looking at this line at eight and a half. And then you go back to last year, you make Ryan Tannehill the full season starter and they play as good as they played at the end of the year in the beginning of the year. And you just replace Tannehill with Mariota from the get-go week one that's an 11-12 win team. That's a team that's in the playoff hunt the entire time. They don't have to make a run at the end of the year to make the playoffs. So you think over, but then on the flip side, you think, okay, a little bit more film now on Ryan Tannehill in this offense, and you think they relied very heavily on Derrick Henry last year. A bell cow back in 2020, they just don't last. So when does he run out of gas? When is that breaking point, that boiling point for Derrick Henry? For if you're a Titan fan, you hope it's not this year because it's on the first year of that four-year extension. But that could come at any time. So if I am betting on, I would probably avoid it altogether. But yeah, I mean this this is a tough one for me because because of that devil's advocate. Well, now you have Tannehill for the full year, but at the same time you rely 80, 85 percent on a running back. So so I'm torn on this one. I guess I would go over over and just respect the run they made in the playoffs. I would respect them getting to an AFC championship last year and saying they find a way to win nine games. And nine games gets you into the playoffs pretty much automatically this year with that seventh spot, that third wild card spot. Let's wrap up this divisional preview with your team, the Indianapolis Colts. A lot of moves, most notably and the most important of them all, you got the quarterback in Phillip Rivers. Would you consider him to be a major upgrade over what Jacoby Brissett? And basically what I'm asking is, do you think he has enough left in the tank to really make a difference here? Yes, definitely because of the team he went to. I think the Colts are set up so perfectly for Phillip Rivers because the Colts run a rhythmic offense, a quick pass, get the ball out fast, go through your progressions quickly, 
get into a rhythm, short dink and dunk, get the ball out to the running back, get the ball out over the middle to the tight end. And Brissett was just so slow going through his progressions, so slow going through his, through his reads. And then you pop on the tape last year and you watch widers because we were binged up badly at the wide receiver position. But you look at guys like Zach Pascal, you look at guys like Marcus Johnson, who were fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh receivers last year in training camp. They were the one and two some games last year for the Colts. And their numbers didn't reflect the tape in terms of them being able to create separation and get open. Same thing with the tight end position. Same thing with the running backs out of the backfield. And now you have a quarterback who has much less arm strength in Phillip Rivers than Jacoby Brissett. Brissett has a much stronger arm, but he was afraid to use it. And you have a quarterback in Rivers, though, who can make up for that lack of arm strength, which we didn't even see last year anyway, because even though Brissett has that gift of a powerful arm, he never used that powerful arm. So now you have a quarterback who might lack that, but he upgrades the position and the offense because of his ability to scan the field, go through the progressions quick, get the ball out quick, and keep the offense in a rhythm, keep the offense up-tempo, and we have the perfect playmakers, the dual tight ends in Burton and in Jack Doyle, and we have the perfect running back core, perfect offensive line, Naheem Hines, who will be a Darren Sproles-like player for him out of the backfield. The offense is set up very well, plus you have an offensive coordinator and a head coach in Frank Reich and Nick Sirianni, who he was with for multiple years in San Diego with the Chargers before they moved to L.A. So I think it's a perfect situation for Phillip Rivers, even at 38 years old. I think he has enough left in the tank to come to Indianapolis and kind of revive himself after a down year last year with the L.A. Chargers throwing 20 picks and not doing what he did in 2018, where he was actually really good, 30-plus touchdowns. I think just 12 interceptions, 12-4 and record, got to the playoffs, beat Lamar Jackson and the Ravens in the playoffs. So I definitely have high expectations for Phillip Rivers coming to Indianapolis. As someone who's covered this team very closely, what would you say are tidy little subplots that you've been following or have really interested you the most? Tiny solve plots in terms of negatives or positives because negatively, you know, there's a lot of optimism about this team right now. The backup O-line depth is a huge, huge, huge concern of mine. I am very concerned about the backup offensive line, primarily the backup tackles because we lose Josh Andrews. We lose Joe Haig in free agency. They're going to go try to become starters. So now you lose your top two backup O-linemen, both interior and exterior. We don't really fill the gap in terms of backup tackles. And then you go back to last year, as banged up as Colt fans can complain, we were at the wide receiver position at you know X, Y, and Z, where we were not banged up last year was the offensive line. All five starters along the offensive line for the Colts last season started all 16 games. And then you could go back to 2018 and those streaks continue so it's asking for a lot it is unheard of to get all five guys to start every game not just one year but back-to-back years so that is definitely a subplot to keep an eye on in terms of negativity and a big knock on this roster one of the few knocks I have on this roster backup O-line and then subplot for like a positive would be would probably be the depth of the running back not a lot of people I don't think a lot of non-Cole fans realize the depth of the running backs Jonathan Taylor uh, Jonathan Williams last year for the Colts ran for 100 plus yards in back-to-back games on a short week going from Sunday to Thursday night which I mentioned earlier and then Jordan Wilkins who currently is the fourth running back on the Colts depth chart last year 
or over the last two years, going into his third year in the league now, in over 100 career carries is averaging 5.8 yards per carry. Damn near six yards per carry after 110 career carries. Very, very impressive. So you look at Mac, you look at the addition of Jonathan Taylor from Wisconsin, Naheem Hines out of the backfield, more of a flex guy. And then Jordan Wilkins, a loaded running back room, running behind the best offensive line in the league. So you talk about the arm strength of Phillip Rivers. You talk about the fact that he's 38 years old. Well, he has a great run game and a great, of course, O-line, which is not, you know, everybody knows how great the Colts O-line is. But he has, you know, two solid position groups there to depend on. So the the O-line I do want, I want to talk about because for years you've had to suffer with your front office not investing at all in the offensive line. You draft this all pro guard in Quentin Nelson, who turns out to be the superstar that he was meant justifiably drafted to be. And you also have a lot of key pieces as well. I believe Ryan Kelly's at center and I believe cat cast Costanzo. I, I sometimes I, I butcher yep. his name and I feel bad. Costanzo, and he's pretty reliable, pretty much just, you have this, and I didn't even know about the continuity that this line has, and I do agree, like, eventually, someone's going to get hurt from playing that long for that consecutive amount of games, but I I also want to ask you about the running backs, what what are your thoughts on Jonathan Taylor, because you drafted him in the second round, and a lot of experts have been going around saying, this guy's could be special. This is someone who could really take the number one spot in, on this team and really make a difference and utilize that elite offensive line and just tear the fields all all over the NFL. Oh, no question. You look at his numbers in comparison to Zeke Elliott and Saquon Barkley in the Big Ten. They're the best out of the three guys. So he had a ridiculous career, only running back in FBS history to rush for over 6,000 yards in only three seasons. Other guys have done it, but it's, it's taken them four seasons to hit that mark. So over 6,000 yards in three seasons, averaging over 2,000 yards per year, which is ridiculously impressive. And now, obviously, coming over to the Colts, playing behind one of the best O-lines in the league. So you look at Saquon Barkley, the only reason his numbers aren't, in my opinion, right now, like, you know, elite, elite Hall of Fame caliber numbers would be because of the offensive line. And last year, you look at that Jet game, 13 carries, one yard. He's too talented for that. But when you don't have the line, you don't have the line. When the gaps aren't open, the gaps aren't open. When they're clogged up, they're clogged up and you just have nowhere to run. So we've seen that a couple times now in Saquon Barkley's career. Jonathan Taylor will not have that issue. Now, the one knock on him at Wisconsin was the fumbles. 18 fumbles in 42 games at Wisconsin. Not a great ratio there. But when you divide it by the amount of carries, he fumbled about once per 90, uh, about once per, I think, 55, 60 touches. The NFL average once per 90. So that's a pretty big difference there. But also something I think the Colts could coach out of him, Tom Rathman. The Colts running back coach, also a great former running back in this league, has done a phenomenal job with ball security with these Colt running backs. Marlon Mack had fumble history, and a lot of guys do come from college where they're so much better than their competition. They carry the ball with one arm. They might have fumbling issues. You get to the pros, they coach that out of you. So last year, between Marlon Mack, Jonathan uh, Jonathan Williams, not to get confused with Jonathan Taylor, Jonathan Williams, Jordan Wilkins, and Naheem Hines out of the Colts' four running backs last year, 399 carries, only one fumble 
by Naheem Hines. Zero fumbles for Marlon Mack and over 200 carries. So ball security last year for Colts running backs was phenomenal. I expect Rathman to do the same thing with Taylor. I expect him to coach that out of him. In the clips from Colts camp, you could already see the emphasis on ball security. Two hands on the rock at all times as he goes through the pile. And then even in the open field, there was a video of him running over a safety Wilson in the secondary, two hands on the ball. So he didn't ne- he never took that second hand off the ball. So I think that's an area of improvement that we would like to see out of him. And up until this point, the Colts have definitely put an emphasis on it in training camp. So, yeah, I'm excited for Jonathan Taylor. I'm excited what he could bring to this offense. You parlay him with Marlon Mack, who people keep forgetting. And he's, you know, he's not getting drafted high in fantasy drafts because of the split carries. Jonathan Taylor is actually getting drafted ahead of him in a lot of these fantasy drafts from what I've seen. But you look at Marlon Mack last year, 10th in rushing. If you take out Lamar Jackson, you just go running backs. He was 10th in the league in rushing and he missed a couple games. So really solid running back core for the Colts, really solid elite starting offensive line. And that should definitely be fun for the Colts offense to watch this year. What do you think about the defense? Because they're led by Darius Leonard. But to me, when I look at their defense, it's a lot of guys that are able to do fit the system, but also not a lot of names. Like, And by the way, this is me not saying this because like I don't really know this defense as well. And it's not really like the part that this team is highlighted for, aside from Darius Leonard, what, how does this defense rank in this league? And what would you say is like their biggest strength? Well, let me just say this as a Colt fan going into this year, I just talked about the offense. I talked about my excitement for the running back position, the offensive line and Phillip rivers. Now as the new addition offensively, I have higher expectations for this defense going into year three under Matt Eberflus than I do for the offense. I actually think this defense right now on paper is better than the offense because you talked about Darius Leonard and this defense will go where Darius Leonard takes them. But this defense, in my opinion, has three all pro caliber talents. Two of them have already been all pros and were all pros last year and Darius Leonard and the new addition of the Forrest Buckner. The Colts actually made that Buckner trade the morning of the DeAndre Hopkins trade. So that was a phenomenal day for the Colts. You get a three tech to drive this defense to absorb that second blocker and to help Darius Leonard run run free and make plays in the middle of the field. And then you also have, in my opinion, an elite slot corner, which is so important in this Frank Reich, Matt Eberflus defense, who's able to make plays. So you have three all pro caliber players in every level of this defense. You have the D line with the Forrest Buckner. You have the linebacker core with Darius Leonard. And then you have the secondary with Kenny Moore. You also have a safety who's not too shabby and Malik Hooker was able to fly around and make plays, and he's now going into a contract year because the Colts did not pick up his fifth-year option of that final year for next year of his rookie contract. So he's playing with a chip on his shoulder. He's playing with something to prove. So I expect him to have a bounce-back year. He got off to a good start last year, made that great play, that one-hand pick against Phillip Rivers, ironically, in the first week against the Los Angeles Chargers. Kind of had a down year after that. Was a little bit afraid to come up, get physical, and tackle, which is very important in this cover two shell defense the Colts run you really want to have safeties who are able both strong and free who are able to run around hit make plays make tackles Malik did not fit that bill last year but I am very excited for this defense on paper the the addition of DeForest Buckner around the league has not been talked about enough you bring an elite three tech to draw that double team it's going to make Justin Houston's job easier it's going to make Grover Stewart's job easier it's going to make Kamoko Ture, Alkadine Muhammad whoever is playing 
on the other side opposite of Justin Houston's job easier. And he's going to draw that double team, opening everything up for Darius Leonard. Darius Leonard won Defensive Rookie of the Year two years ago. He was another, you know, back-to-back All-Pros, first-team All-Pro his first year, second-team All-Pro his second year without a great three-tech with Danico Autry in front of him, who was pretty solid in 2018, had a down year in 2019. Now you add DeForest Buckner into the mix. Darius Leonard's going to put up insane numbers. He's already put up insane numbers. So he's going to put up insane numbers this year in that linebacking court in the middle of the defense for the Colts. And right now, I would, I mean... I don't know if I would say I would I expect it, but I would not be surprised if Darius Leonard was your 2020 Defensive Player of the Year. That's some high praise. And let me tell you, as someone who has uh, experienced what it's like having a middle, an excellent middle linebacker anchoring your defense, when you have that position down, it, the whole def- defense as a, as a whole is just in sync. Everybody's in, on the same page and just feels as a unit, everybody is just boosted and they're able to get the stops that they need to get and need to get. And, you know, the, the addition of DeForest Bunker, which, by the way, I honestly was completely forgot about, is astronomical because this guy is the All-Pro. This guy was tearing apart the NFC West for years, especially last year, as part of that dominant defensive line. So let's wrap up with the Colts. Win total is at nine. I think I you've basically talked me into the over. <laughs> yes, I'm very high on the over. I've actually had the over for I think I have the over, to be honest with you, on one of my sites at 8.5 because I took it very early and I got a bargain in terms of that 0.5 where the Colts could go 9-7. I'll still hit. If you were to take it now, I guess it would be nine games, like you said, and it would be a push. But, yeah, I would definitely take over that number. What did you say it was just now? You it said was it was nine? exactly nine. Um, but keep in mind, all these numbers I got from Action Network. So mm-hmm. the exact win total that I got from them is nine. Yes, I guess depending on where you look, you can get different numbers for all four teams. But yeah, nine, I would definitely go with the over. Because you look at last year for the Colts, they go seven and nine. They upgrade the two most important positions on the field. The most important position offensively, the quarterback position. And then the most important position in a 4-3 defense is the three technique. And the Colts have made that very clear this offseason. Chris Ballard made it very clear. And he made it clear before the DeForest Buckner trade that the most important position on this defense is the three tech. The three tech drives this defense. And then he goes out and he makes the blockbuster move trading the 13th overall pick to San Francisco for DeForest Buckner. So, yes, I would definitely go with the over. Also, the Colts upgraded the kicking position, which we didn't talk about for any of the four teams, but it's just such a underappreciated position until it matters, and it mattered a lot for the Colts last year. They were in so many one-score games, and Vinatieri missed so many extra points, so many easy field goals within 40 yards, both indoors and outdoors. It was really... It was really hard to watch at times for a legend of this league and a legend of the Colts organization, a guy who helped us win a Super Bowl in 2006. It was difficult to watch the decline of Adam Vinatieri. But when you're in your 40s, he was like about 45 years old last year. When you're in your 40s, it's bound to happen. So now you upgrade the kicker position depending on who wins that battle between Chase McLaughlin and Rigoberto and uh, no, Rodrigo Blankenship, Rodrigo Blankenship out of the University of Georgia, depending on who wins that battle. I think right now the Colts are leaning towards um, Chase McLaughlin, who's been better up until this point in camp and was pretty solid for the Colts last year. He missed one 47-yard kick against Tampa Bay, which ultimately led to the Colts losing the game. But other than that, he was perfect last year, didn't miss any other kicks, didn't miss any extra points, was 100% on extra points on the season. But yeah, you lose 
Benatar, you upgrade the kicker position, which really hurt the Colts last year. You upgrade the quarterback position, and la- and you upgrade, of course, the defensive tackle position with Buckner. And last year, you go seven and nine, and Jacoby missed two games where Brian Hoyer played. Let's say Jacoby plays those two games against Miami and Pittsburgh. You probably still lose the Pittsburgh game. I thought Hoyer was okay in that game. I think Jacoby beats Miami. That puts you at eight and eight. If you're going to tell me that Phillip Rivers, Chase McLaughlin, and DeForest Buckner only make a one-game difference, I will be very, very happy to bet the over on that and see the Colts winning 10-plus games this year. Worst comes to worst, you push, but I would expect that over nine to hit. If it was 9.5, I would also take the over. Let's wrap up this podcast just overall revisiting your hatred of the Titans, which, you know, you mentioned this earlier, like this division established in 2002, not a lot of history, but the Colts hatred of the Titans, is this like a thing amongst like the Colts fans? Like, is there a deep seated hatred for a mutual hatred between the two fan bases or is it just exclusively you hating the Titans a lot more than the other teams? Because look, I understand how you feel on that. I hate the 49ers especially the fans. I I don't like the fans at all. And, you know, hating on the 49ers is also pretty fun. It's a fun thing to do. But uh, can you explain where this has rooted your hatred of the Titans? I mean, I would also say the same thing about the Jaguars and the Jaguar fans and the Texans and the Texans fans. I just happened to say it about the Titans. It just kind of slipped out before when we were talking about it. But I would say I hate all of them. I don't put any of them in my top three. A lot of people, their most hated team would be a division rival. For you, it might be the 49ers. Giant fans will say Cowboys. Cowboy fans will say Giants. Steelers, Ravens, you go down the line. Usually, it's a division rivalry. For me, it would still be the Patriots, the Steelers, the Chargers. Those are probably my top three. I hated Phillip Rivers until he signed with the Colts this offseason. So, I definitely have a lot of hatred. There's also a reason. I told you before, I don't play fantasy football. There's a reason because I hate 31 teams. I don't want to root for any players on any teams unless they're on my team. So I guess that would really just be a common theme with mine. I'm not really into rooting for anybody unless you're wearing the blue and white and you have a horseshoe on the side of your helmet. But the Titan fans, definitely annoying. In terms of success, though, the Colts have been extremely successful against the Titans. Andrew Luck has retired without ever losing a game to them. I think he went 11 and 0 or 12 and 0 against the tight uh, against the Titans. Never lost a game to them. So I really don't have a reason to hate them. I really don't have a reason to hate them other than just because they're in my division, because we play them twice a year, and because they're fun to hate. Same thing with the Jaguars. Same thing with the Texans. I just had to ask just because, like, it just slipped. As you said, it slipped out. So I have to do my due diligence as the host to investigate that even further. But all right. Of <laughs> let's all right luke let's let the folks know what is going on with you and how they can reach out to you uh yeah you can just check out the for the culture podcast we're on youtube we're on spotify we're on apple podcast we're on radio.com pretty much all the podcasting platforms it's for the culture cult spelled c-o-l-t-u-r-e instead of c-u-l so cult for cult is a little play on words there as a cult driven podcast and we upload pretty regularly, especially during the season. All right. Thanks so much, Luke, for popping on. I really appreciate that. That's going to do it, everybody. Do not forget to follow this podcast on Spotify as well as Anchor.fm. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and I will see you guys next time.